Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. In today's episode, we welcome back a special friend of the Pure Animal Podcast, Dr. Matthew Muir, in a two-part series about mind-body veterinary medicine. Dr. Matthew Muir obtained a double degree in veterinary science and veterinary biology in 2010 with first-class honours from Charles Sturt University. He began work as a mixed animal general practitioner in Griffith, Australia, and then moved to the UK and commenced out-of-hours emergency and critical care work at a Royal Veterinary College top-tier hospital before consulting in wellness and internal medicine. After several years abroad, Matt returned to Australia and joined the team at All Natural Vet Care in Sydney. His veterinary interests are wellness and preventative healthcare, soft tissue surgery, integrative dentistry, and all disciplines linked to the gut, skin, brain axis. Hi again, Matt, and welcome back to the Pure Animal Podcast. How are you today? Yeah, great, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, always. And today we're going to discuss a topic that is really quite unique and something that I... I guess I've known about, but perhaps not put a name to, and that is psychoneuroimmunology, which we will thereafter refer to as PNI. Yeah, that's a good idea. (laughs) So tell us a bit about what this is. Yeah, so I think that a lot of um, people, it will resonate that it is something that um, is more about mind-body connection. Um, And so psychoneuroimmunology talks about the links between a bidirectional link between the brain and the body, mm-hmm. okay? And really the brain and the immune system, particularly about communication using hormones, neurotransmitters and other unknown mechanisms yet, nerve stimulation, autonomic nervous system, and looking at how if we zoom out a little bit and mm-hmm. take a systems biology approach, we can start to sort of lose this very traditional or Cartesian um, split between mind and body that's been in medicine for a couple of centuries and start to say, no, actually, the mind and the body are completely linked. Yeah. And and certainly that that's sort of nicely wrapped up in holism or holistic um, thought. Um, but now it's starting to say, no, this is, this is scientifically validated. This is an emerging discipline. It's not, it's not new, new news. It's, it's old. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that this is trying to put it into the framework of, of conventional specialism, mm-hmm. um, but looking at saying, okay, we've got these links. How can we validate them? through the appropriate scientific um, evidence-based framework um, and what do we do with this information and Mm -hmm. clinical applications. Before we jump into the details, are you able to help us understand some common scenarios where P&I is relevant in people and or pets? Sure. Like I guess one of the common examples in humans is the role of stress in psoriasis. That's that's mm. one of the most documented um, examples. But really what we're, what we're seeing is that any chronic stress or even acute stress, um, most of the examples are looking at, okay, what do elevated cortisol levels do for cytokine expression or inflammatory molecules or neurotransmitters? 
um, uh, and and looking at those links. So certainly a lot of diseases that have um, that like psychiatric disorders or other diseases that are associated with stress, what we're now seeing is a, a lot of correlation between these and other inflammatory disorders, IBD, Crohn's, um, even cancer. Um, so really it's, it's across a lot of different um, uh, conditions. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And certainly I've personally experienced how stress can impact my gut function and health. Sure. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. definitely real. <laughs> it's very, I mean, the most, if we're going to strip it right back to um, everyday language, I think the kind of butterflies in the stomach yeah. um, is, yeah. is probably the classic, um, yeah. you know, two second uh, um, analogy to get people thinking about, okay, how can the brain really uh, talk to digest the, the digestive tract? Yeah. Um, but it's important to realise actually an increase increasingly that the gut um, uh, the gut uh, and the brain uh, or the gut-brain axis, um, certainly that's a two-way street. Um, that's not just the brain talking to the gut, it's the gut talking to the brain. Um, so certainly uh, when I really got interested in this field, I was more interested in the gut-brain axis, which is very much about um, the gut and the brain. Um, however, that's kind of broadened out more recently for my exploration into the, the scientific literature, looking at it, that it is actually a bit broader than that. And P&I is, is broader than just simply the, the gut and the gut microbiota talking to the brain. Um, it's, it's much broader um, and more complex across um, the hormonal axis of the body um, and then the effect of uh, neuroinflammation um, where so in fact uh, inflammation in the brain that mm. could be coming from elsewhere in the body is having effects on uh, how the brain functions it's it's very multi-directional um, yeah. and very complex it sounds very complex yeah so I think we just have to be, learn to become um, comfortable with complexity in medicine yeah I think we're <laughs> very uh, very used to trying to do one thing target one yeah. thing Put everything one in nice molecule, boxes. Yeah, yeah, use one um, molecular entity um, to cut off one uh, enzymatic pathway and sort of do nothing else. Um, but it, it just seems that we have to start being more comfortable with complexity. And it's it's happening. Like precision medicine, certainly personalised medicine yes. in humans is starting to say, no, we've got uh, – uh, we can use algorithms and machine learning to – to be more precise with what's more appropriate for each individual um, patient, whether that's an animal or a human. Yeah, great. Yeah, I love it. And let's hope that eventually it becomes a bit more mainstream. <laughs> oh, I think it's I think it's well on its way. Yeah, good. Yeah, I yeah. think it's the evidence base is insurmountable now. I think that what we're seeing is that, and it's very exciting for me, and conflict of interest statement, I guess, is like I'm a holistic vet. Um, you know, I work on a day-to-day basis with acupuncture and herbal medicine and nutrition, um, so I do have a cognitive dis- uh, dissonance or cognitive bias towards wanting all of this stuff to be uh, explained because I, myself and other holistic practitioners or other practitioners who have observed really exciting anecdotes are, yeah. are saying, this works, something is working, yeah, like what want, is going you need the on? Literature to so now we're too. saying, yeah. okay, all of this, including traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, it's all now starting to be uh, rationalised through the current framework of of, of biomedical evidence base and it's really cool. It's really yeah, validating. Yeah. Um, and it's really awesome that even when I talk to particularly the conventional internal medicine specialists, um, particularly around the gut um, and how they're saying now like, 
no, don't do metronidas off a puppy diarrhea because you wipe out um, Clostridium heuronis and it's really difficult to get back. It's it's really cool that and that I'm seeing um, conventional practitioners looking at sending off um, faecal microbiome tests to look for dysbiosis in to yeah, the states great. and yeah. it's this complexity with microbiome and epigenetics is is really starting to come into the the mainstream um, and it, the human medicines had a bit of a head start through yeah. functional medicine. So it seems like this focus on the microbiome and personalised medicine has all happened quite quickly. Do you agree in terms yeah. of how fast it's you, things usually move? Well, I think it's because as soon as they crack the human um, um, uh, genetic uh, project, um, then it just really accelerated just a lot off. of uh, and and certainly with um, technology and information technology um, with regards to algorithms and AI um, mean that yeah. it's large data sets are able to be cleaned up and, and uh, insights can be generated from it. Yeah, great. Well, it's only going to benefit all of us. So that's yeah, really yeah. We exciting. just have to know uh, what's where the noise is, and and how we can bring it back to um, what is actually modifiable. Um, a lot of this stuff is super exciting, but then you've got to think, okay, well. Uh, can it be mitigated can be with applied, lifestyle yeah. modifications yeah. and, you know, how does it, like trying to turn complexity um, with a filter of common sense uh, into uh, clinical um, use is, is I think, where we have to focus. And we are going to talk about clinical applications and how we can utilise this information in therapies in part B of this podcast, which is really exciting. Yeah. So everyone look out for that one coming in the next month. Um, so we've touched a bit about why you're interested in PNI, and it's certainly making me very interested in it as well. Just hearing the passion come through in your voice, psychoneuroimmunology PNI explores the link between all body systems. So can we talk a little bit about what is happening in human medicine around vagal nerve manipulation and some of those practices? Sure. Yeah. So uh, the vagus nerve is um, really a, a almost a one-size-fits-all <laughs> approach to the body. It's a nerve that's uh, intertwined with a lot of the organs in the body and, and all of the, the systems. Um, so what, what it's starting to emerge, and certainly if you go on PubMed, there's a lot of literature on vagal nerve stimulation. Um, we're finding, we, I say we, uh, scientists are finding <laughs> um, that uh, by stimulating this nerve, uh, you can actually um, uh, improve um, the, the parasympathetic um, nervous system, uh, downregulate sympathetic nervous system and have uh, clinically effective um, outcomes. Um, the, I guess the standout is probably refractory epilepsy um, where the FDA is approved. It's a wearable device, so it's similar to, I guess, to a pacemaker that stimulates the vagus nerve. Really? Yeah. Wow. But now what, what's cool and, and certainly with my background background with acupuncture um, is that uh, transcutaneous um, vagal nerve stimulation via the ear um, is uh, th through uh, certain parts of the ear can actually elicit some of those responses wow. using essentially a TENS machine, so electrical mm -hmm. current to to help modify the nerves. And, and it's emerging um, certainly with acupuncture, sorry, uh, epilepsy, um, IBD, um, inflammatory bowel disease, it's emerging that it, it can play a role. Um, and it's with IBD, I guess, another thing to mention is that there's a, a, a lot of 
um, talk around the role of certain amino acid deficiencies, um, tryptophan, for example, um, and how, uh, how so certainly neurotransmitters and, and anxiety, depression seem to play a role. Um, is that due with, to decreased gut synthesis of serotonin or is that separate? I think it's separate. Yeah, yeah certainly a dysbiosis. Um, I mean, if there's, if there's no neurotransmitter um, uh, production from the, the microbiome, um, yeah. certainly that can, uh, I guess, complicate it. But I, I think it's a little bit deeper than that. Yeah, because yeah. serotonin, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, serotonin in itself that's produced in the cut in the gut can't cross the blood-brain barrier to increase brain serotonin. So that's why you need the tryptophan as a precursor, which can. Yeah. 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 yeah, so five HTP, and I, I think that I think the they talk about the blood brain barrier, but I think increasingly it's known as the blood um, blood brain uh, highway. Um, yeah, okay. And so I think that there's still more to learn about exactly how more permeable uh, than we yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, potentially, and certainly there's there's a thought that there's like a leaky, um, like a almost like a leaky gut, um, increased um, permeability on the blood brain barrier as well. Yeah, um, but yeah, I don't know the finer details of of how much the uh, the serotonin, uh, sorry, the tryptophan manufacturer is related to, uh, I think it's more related to like plasma tryptophan being a marker for IBD and um, and uh, right. playing playing a role in predicting how certain therapies could work. Right. Um, okay. But it sort of goes into this thing about if we can stimulate the vagus nerve, uh, we can get different neuro, neurotransmitter and autonomic nervous si- uh, signaling um, and the neuroendocrine system to be um, sending appropriate signals um, to the gut. Um, but more than that, I think um, P&I also talks about the role of, of the cytokine um, cascade um, and and with particularly with COVID, all the, uh, that cytokine storm has become sort of part of uh, everyday language mm. to some extent um, that we're seeing that uh, manipulating these signals can play a role in, in pro-inflammatory drive in the body. Yeah, okay. So yeah. that brings it back to the obviously the IBD being that chronic inflammation within the colon. Yeah. So that's what you're referring to there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but like I, I certainly don't profess to know the no, f- full scope of this because it's so emerging. <laughs> so but it, it's just too. saying yeah. that like I think at this point it's just being, mind the pun, mindful about the fact that there is this interplay happening link. and that there could be new clinical applications yeah. on the horizon to to address this. Wow. And, yeah, so certainly if we talk, go back a little bit talking about refractory epilepsy, that's yeah. uh, the role of behavioural modification um, for uh, as part of the epilepsy toolkit for canines is being sort of uh, proposed based on what they're seeing with a lot of uh, behavioural modification techniques in humans and, and addressing anxiety yeah, as part of Yeah, I was just going to say, so that's epilepsy. reducing stress and anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, okay, right. Yeah. So reducing the seizure threshold by controlling the anxiety. Increase, well, increasing the seizure threshold. Increasing it, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so. That's what I meant. <laughs> um, yeah, that yeah, a baseline lower um, anxiety. Like if we think that anxiety is a, a trigger for, for yeah. seizures, um, which uh, certainly um, it was my clinical um, experience and suspicion that that was happen- happening, um, that dogs that I saw that had a lot of hyperarousal problems um, or uh, phobias or anxiety, generalised anxiety, these were dogs that uh, I was uh, seeing and... I guess going right back to why am I interested in this, in my clinic I meet a lot of animals that have refractory disease. Um, People are really looking for 
uh, for solutions that they haven't been able to find. And so sometimes I'll meet a patient um, that uh, comes in and they, the families, rightly so, they're really demoralised and burnt out emotionally about trying to help their family member. They will throw their hands in the air um, and be like, we've tried everything for the epilepsy and, I'm, and I'll be seeing a dog that's in the consult room fiddling and, and really hyper-aroused and yeah. anxious and and so then I'll say, well, let's we, like, how about we forget the epilepsy for now, or forget the the pododermatitis? Mm. Let's focus on the anxiety. The mental health, yeah. yeah, we need to focus on their mental well-being, yeah. um, and really elevate that as part of the overall quality of life of the pet in the now and in yeah. the future. And if you think that you've tried everything, um, maybe maybe not. Maybe um, you're looking at it and, from the wrong angle. Yeah. yeah, and that's kind of what motivates me to get further into this field and and share. Um, my experiences because for a long time some of the successes that we have in our clinic, um, say for epilepsy when I've looked at a dog that's got, uh, in my opinion, poorly controlled um, uh, anxiety mm. and we focus more on that, the seizures can really go into the shadows and, and really? we can so get you're like... Really? seeing those results? Yeah, yeah. we're seeing like much stronger, um, much longer interictal periods um, yeah, with the seizures or reduced seizure intensity yeah. um, and uh, and certainly we use multimodal approach with epilepsy so there's a, a lot of other therapies that we put on board Um, but just having a mindfulness about it um, that's that's where we're at and it's really nice now to see that the evidence base is is now vindicating that is confirming what you're seeing in practice yeah it's so nice it must be so nice for you it's great yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, like I want it to happen like I want the evidence base to be more robust because like we we have our anecdotes yeah um, and we have traditional medicine but it's really important um, and particularly if it makes my informed consent process with the families that visit me easier because it's faster because a, a lot of what I have to do it and I really have to be very careful that um, as an integrative veterinarian that I'm not selling false hope. Like that's, oh, yeah, you know, course, we, we yeah. need to be really uh, realistic um, and we need to be really fair to the people that come to see us. And a lot of the time um, with informed consent, a lot of people are, are so desperate that at that point they're like, I don't care about informed Sign consent. Anything. Like, or we'll, <laughs> we'll just do what you think's yeah. best. And it's like, yeah, we, we can do that. Um, but it's nice that um, the the preclinical evidence and, and our um, evidence-informed decision-making, including our unpublished internal um, data collection and, and work that we're doing in-house, um, which I'll touch more about on in a second, is, is getting easier because the evidence base is just exploding in this field. Yeah, that's so exciting. Yeah. That's excellent. Yeah. And you also, you've mentioned that you often see those refractory cases. So what about your refractory dermatoses? Can you use this this understanding to help those cases too? Oh, absolutely. I yeah. mean, the, the gut-brain-skin axis is is so strong. And if we're talking about a, a path, a one particular pathway of interest is looking at saying, okay, what, what does elevated cortisol um, or uh, iatrogenic use of cortisol do for um, the gut lining? Um, mm. What role does a reduced gut lining and a uh, increased gut hyperpermeability um, uh, play to the skin? Mm-hmm. Um, what role do cytokines play associated with stress um, and looking at saying, okay, we've got a classic IgE-mediated hypersensitivity versus other nuances with certain cytokine signaling to the skin um, and all of this 
inflammatory mirroring, as some people would describe, between, okay, what's happening at the gut lining um, is happening at the skin as well. Yeah. Um, not to mention that uh, that dogs who lick their paws, um, licking, uh, chewing on bones, these sort of things, yeah. we know Become that... compulsive, yeah. Yeah, we know that they get serotonin surges yeah. from chewing on things. Um, we, we we see that there it turns into a stereotypical OCD-like yeah. um, licking. Um, and so absolutely, skin is a is a huge one where people come to me and they've, they're the classic, like, we've tried everything yeah. and I'll say do some behaviour modification. Kersey Sexual has a, a behaviour modification for um, uh, reducing pruritus um, handout. Wow. Yeah. 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 So it's not uh, – it's certainly um, something that we look at. Yeah. Um, and then if you think about some of the um, physiological assessments of of anxiety, bloodshot eyes, just increased redness. Um, if we're thinking about skin or ear infections, um, I know it's it might be a little bit too holistic for some people to recognise, but to me, if you're meeting a dog that's got really inflamed pinnae um, mm-hmm. there and they've got really red ears um, and they've got, they're a dog that has an anxiety and a skin comorbidity, mm-hmm even if they truly aren't related, which I'd say that the evidence is saying strongly that they are, even if they're not related, if we've got a hot dog who's panting, uh, showing visible signs of uh, anxiety and they have a tendency towards uh, malassezia, overgrowth in their ears, that heat in, you know, the tropical microclimate of the ear is not helping the situation. Um, And then... I do think that there's some transference frustration in these cases where people are saying, stop looking, like, stop doing that. No, like, because it's 2 a.m. Yeah. in the morning and they're yeah. trying to sleep and they're exhausted and the dog is licking their paws. Yeah. Um, and and so breaking, I think breaking the itch cycle also has to be about um, breaking a, a behavioural um, uh, pattern that's been reinforced one way or the other. Yeah, um, yeah, I love yeah. that. I love that yeah. concept. So skin gut... Uh, skin gut brain is is certainly probably where I most where I first started getting interested in this. Yeah, and it's yeah. just so common. I mean, skin gut brain. It's possibly the most common three reasons for presentation to any vet clinic. If you think about it. Yeah, and I guess from one big thing picture. from a big picture, absolutely, and why it's increasingly pertinent um, in in a post COVID world is that what we're what we're seeing with skin is that. Um, uh, psychological stressors um, in early life um, in animal models dictate lifetime expression of pro-inflammatory cytokines um, and uh, and that there is links between um, the T help, helper cell balance and uh, immune dysregulation um, and that the immunoregulatory uh, mechanisms are all out of whack in dogs that have had or in... Uh, I think there's some in dogs there is because there's some neurodegenerative um, studies that are looking at dogs with cognitive um, canine dysfunction as a model for human Alzheimer's yes, for translational course, yeah. research. Um, but also in other, uh, mostly in humans and, and also in um, the poor little lab animals, um, that... Uh, there's there's stressors where they did some um, stressors on rats and then looked at what their um, cytokines were doing um, and they've looked at what happens in humans and it seems that either 
inflammation in early life creates anxiety in later life and anxiety or increased physiological stress in early life changes the outcomes in the long term um, with regards to inflammatory diseases. And we're seeing an epidemic of inflammatory diseases. And what scares me um, and uh, is that the in clinic, uh, I'm increasingly seeing gut allergy and stress all in the same patient. So yeah. I'm just so I, I, to me, I see it all the same. And why it's very critical now is with with COVID. Um, there's a recent paper that talks about this. Uh, they call it the gut um, gut microbiota cytokine storm inflammatory triad. Wow. Um, and so they're talking Is about... Is there an acronym for that? <laughs> no, but you can, you can coin it. Um, uh, so this, this triad, if you like, it just goes to show um, that we know that the the gut microbiome produced B vitamins and serotonin, uh, sorry, tryptophan and, and serotonin and um, uh, and play a role in modifying short chain fatty acids and uh, and how we uh, how dogs uh, digest energy. So they they play this role through this um, gut associated psychology. Um, so we we see that, and so we see that the microbiota is involved. We see that puppies whose mothers have been fed real food, um, whole food nutrition during her lactation have a, a de- lifetime decreased risk of um, atopic dermatitis uh, prevalence mm. in West Highland Terriers. Who are and is that related to, just touching on some individual, is that related to any particular nutrient that is higher in those higher quality diets like DHA or... Well, DHA is an interesting one. I mean, it's 20% of the cerebral volume is is DHA. So, uh, yes, I think that DHA plays a role. It plays a role, um, like essential fatty acids play a role at the integrity of the um, mucosal lining of the gastrointestinal tract. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and so important uh, for brain development. Yeah, learning. Um, yeah, puppies that have uh, appropriate levels of DHA um, in early life have um, better learning uh, capacities. Yeah, memory. Yeah. yeah, memory. We know that... Um, and then certainly the median chain triglycerides later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that um, the omega-3 uh, is also cy- uh, a cytoprotective um, and we know that stress is, um, is cyto- like uh, excessive stress is toxic to brain cells. Yeah. So yeah. there's all of these links yeah. that are sort of starting to pop up in the literature um, and starting to say, mm, wait a minute, this is getting way more intertwined um, and then looking at, what they're saying about this COVID triad, I think the most important thing to pull out from it is saying there's a gut-brain link um, and also we need to remember that the immune system and inflammation are not different things. We need to remember that the immune system, inflammation is part of the immune system. Mm -hmm. So we need to look at inflammatory diseases as immune dysregulation diseases. And we need to know that the microbiome um, and the interplay between the microbiome and the host is so um, connected and part of that is the brain. So it's it's it really um, starts to say this is super connected. There's all of this literature that's coming out. It it validates a lot of people's suspicions based yeah. on their own observations. Um, it validates uh, common terminology like the butterflies in your stomach, um, and it's it's very exciting. Um, it is where very it's exciting. I'm feeling very excited just talking to you about it. Good. <laughs> You've done done all the reading for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's excellent, and it's it's great to have you on, and just so topical at the moment to have this released when we are recovering from. 
hopefully recovering from COVID. Yeah, I mean, if we can, if we can um, shed more light on the role that stress plays in immune system function, I think that's the world needs that right now because we're we are uh, under a lot of collective anxiety right now, yeah. um, and certainly uh, pets are experiencing it. I'm mm-hmm. seeing it in clinic, particularly uh, here in Sydney, where uh, we had six months of. Uh, of apocalyptic um, bushfire smoke, yeah. horrible bushfire smoke, um, which is uh, certainly related to environmental change. Um, and then we've got six months of weirdness for our dogs off the back change of that. Change in routine. So to yeah. me, um, particularly dogs that have been negatively triggered to smoke alarms and are actually scared of smoke, um, which I've seen in clinic, is, mm-hmm. is just uh, not a nice time for dogs. Couple that with the the fact that um, there is still puppy farms in this country um, and it's it's difficult to navigate that, but uh, that the microbiome may be uh, tending more towards a microbiome that is dysbiotic. Yeah, starting out on the wrong foot. Mm. But but again, this mindfulness about it um, and can only the, be a good thing. And the um, how much research is directed at uh, at clinical applications mm. is very exciting. Yeah, very exciting, and we'll get into clinical applications in part B. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, some other things I wanted to chat to you about. You have mentioned acupuncture, but the role of tea touch, so therapeutic touch, mm-hmm. I believe, tea touch, and using canine biofeedback and some relaxation techniques. Sure. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. So certainly this flows into um, the therapeutic applications. Uh, yeah. So it's Tellington Tea Touch, um, uh, which is a um, a touch uh, program. Um, and where I started, actually, it was a client of mine in London who um, asked me to do it for her dog when she was visiting the vets um, who had vet phobia. And she, she said, can you do these Tellington Tea Touch ear slides when you're examining her? This is um, years ago. And I was like, sure, yeah, if that's what calms her down, um, it doesn't need to be a modality to me. If she likes the touch, I'll do it. Um, and so from then, I think that a lot of the tea touch um, and, and certainly um, biofeedback comes from how do I make trips to the vets less stressful for everyone, including myself, uh, certainly my patients, and increasingly um, the burden of uh, stress pets on on the fa- their families um, because it's just not nice for anyone. Um, so tea touch, I use it uh, in clinic a lot to to form positive associations with coming to the vets. Um, and that also helps because I want to do physical therapies like acupuncture, myofascial release um, and TENS um, where I want animals to feel comfortable and relaxed. So the level of um, uh, vet phobia, uh, remediation and rehabilitation that I'm trying to achieve in our clinic um, is huge because I want animals over their lifetimes to become increasingly happy to come to the vets mm. and I want them leaving with the endorphin cascade or relaxation response they get from acupuncture Mm -hmm. because I think a lot of people don't realise that dogs that come for acupuncture or cats even that um, I'll poke 10 to 20 acupuncture needles. I mean, they're fine, silicon, floppy, very, very flexible little needles, but we we, we give them uh, acupuncture. Um, often no one's holding them. I'll just lie them on a bed and sit down and 
do the acupuncture, including into tender myofascial zones that mm-hmm. are, are muscle, taut muscle um, uh, bands that are, are sore to touch. Um, once an animal's uh, reasonably comfortable, uh, I'll, I'll be doing that. And, and when I say reasonably comfortable, that can be a couple of minutes after doing an acupuncture um, needle insertion elsewhere that mm-hmm. isn't tender. Okay. Um, yep. And we know that the, the body can produce a bunch of endogenous op- uh, opioids, um, encephalin um, and, and certainly drug therapy like low-dose naltrexone starting to sort of show these mechanisms of action. Um, but anyone that's had acupuncture, will, uh, a lot of people will describe, or a really good massage, describe walking out of there being like, I can't drive a car right now. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in an endorphin bath. Yeah. Um, and uh, and what we're, we're wanting to endorphin bath these pets at the vets. Uh, so they, we want them to love coming because we don't want them to be, it's really counterproductive to getting an animal better if they're vet phobic and they're sick. Because again, stress, stress. Um, this PNI, uh, if they're stressed and particularly stressed and needing hospitalization, which yeah. is just, uh, I think that hospitalization needs to be thought very carefully about what impact and which animals really are stress resilient enough to, to be that. meaningfully uh, improved through hospitalization. Certainly, hospitalization plays a role. Um, but uh, I'm trying to be more upstream with that and say, oh, we'll, we'll try and keep them well, but we also want them uh, happier to come to the vets because they're only going to get older. Um, uh, uh, pain, um, if, if we do everything right, pinch of good luck, um, then we'll be managing um, uh, mobility associated with old age in your pet. We'll try and really slow down that process and um, through uh, preventative medicine um, as much as we possibly can, a sprinkle of good luck. Mm. Um, but then later in life, we want them really um, comfortable being at the vets. Mm. Yeah, so that's they'll probably be visiting more frequently as they get older. Yeah, yeah. And so that's kind of where T-Touch came into play mm-hmm. um, to calm down dogs. Um, but then since then, I've, I, I send all of majority of my clients home with it, depending if the animal's really not up for touch. Um, a lot of my clients, I'll send them home um, with an instruction to start experimenting with T-Touch. Okay. Um, it's, uh, it's on YouTube. So it's certainly something that I'd say people can really start experimenting with. And it really comes into the whole thing about tender loving care and, and just feeling feeling good and sense of vitality. And, yeah. and the, there's very soft touch points um, that, you know, there is emerging evidence um, about this sort of thing. Certainly, like in Scotland, they they recommend nature, uh, time in nature as a, as a therapeutic modality for mm-hmm. behavioural disorders in humans. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this endorphin bathing thing about just this feel-good kind of long walks on the beach yeah. type thing, <laughs> yeah. like it, it, it can't, like it often helps and I, I, it generally can't be too harmful for, um, for animals to, to go and no, do these things. I can't see any downside to it at all. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. And um, ni- maybe and nice... a cruciate if they're, if they're <laughs> fat dogs, no no fetch on fat sand, on, on um, uh, soft sand if they're overweight and at yeah. risk of doing a cruciate. But uh, yeah, so that's that's where I brought it into the clinic, um, and then uh, biofeedback uh, is very much about um, enforced meditation for dogs. And, and this is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah I really want to know cool. about this yeah. enforced meditation. <laughs> yeah, so um, it's it's so it's got different names. I mean, it, it's. I guess the way I explain it to my clients is often thinking about the old school like play dead trick, um, which mm-hmm. is, um, you know, getting a dog to lie down on its side and stay still. Um, 
depending on how it's been reinforced, um, if it's been positively reinforced as a trick, um, it is very much about getting the dog to lay still, um, reducing its heart rate, um, reducing its respiratory rate, um, having a, a, a restoring physiological balance mm. in the body. Okay. Um, so biofeedback, um, again, has a much bigger role in, in human medicine. It's, it, it's utilised as is mindfulness and hypnotherapy and other modalities, but um, it's certainly been utilised in epilepsy as well. Biofeedback um, is a way that we can get dogs to uh, to settle down, um, and it also means that then genuine um, uh, uh, behavioural modification can be uh, implemented off the back of it. Um, so, right. if if you can't get a dog to um, uh, take a like to to watch you and sit and wait calmly, um, then a lot of um, effective behavioural modification yeah. won't actually be able to happen because the dog's already flooded. Um, this sounds quite similar. Sorry to interject. This sounds right. like a similar concept to why sometimes clinicians may reach for pharmaceutical medication in patients with mental ill health to try sure. and to try and enable them to be able to have a larger capacity to learn. Yeah, get them in the learning zone. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, totally. I'm not saying that this could replace that, but it sounds like it's really performing the same function. Yeah, I think it's um, in the same realm. Yeah. Um, the effects may not be as predictable, um, yeah. but in saying that a lot of the pharmatropic approaches to behaviour are, um, there is some unpredictability still um, with how we, we intervene with SSRIs and other medications, um, but certainly they play a role and I'm not adverse to their use. Mm. Um, but certainly the other thing to bear in mind is that it could be a good adjunct um, to one another rather than yeah, needing to add like polypharmacy or add yeah. a situational drug on top of yeah. um, of fluoxetine or, or something, then it might mean to say, actually, if we can get a dog um, uh, calmer, and the other thing I'd say is even if they are on um, uh, medication for behaviour, um, my view would be always trying to, majority of the time, trying to de-escalate them off, them yeah. off it um, once we're quite happy that we've um, re-educated the dog that they have emotional safety and security yeah. um, and that they're uh, that we're quite comfortable that we've um, desensitised and counter-conditioned them to their triggers yeah. um, or that we can modify their environment for them yeah. and society at large to be safe. Um, but what I might say is that part if a dog whose baseline level is is always in an orange or red zone is how I talk about it with my, my client base, that if a dog's unable to learn um, and when they're on, if they do need to be on behavioural medications, uh, modifying medications, then I would say, all right, now do the biofeedback. <laughs> Now train them to be calm. Um, mm. So biofeedback uh, is one. It, it, it simplistically, it's about um, getting a dog to take a deep breath on command. So breath, um, wow. and it can be done by getting a dog to like holding a treat in front of their nose, wait, waiting for their nasal flare to happen, and then mark that behaviour. So wow. good breath, um, give them the treat, um, and then to the point where you can like say take some breaths. Um, then you can get them to do mat training. Um, the standout person in this field is Karen Overall. Um, mm -hmm. So Karen Overall, who I utilise a lot of her protocols um, for preventative mental health, which I'm a big, like when people come into my clinic with a new uh, family member, um, I'm I'm very much like, forget about the physical stuff right now. We need to talk about their yeah. behaviour because yep. that's that's what puts, that that's what put dogs in shelters. Yep. Um, and yeah. like you said, their 
behaviour and the way that that is handled or their mental health, sorry, in those formative years can impact their immune system and the level of inflammation later on. Sure. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so it's so it, crucial. It's, it's really crucial on multiple levels. Um, so when they come in, I, I'll be saying like, you know, we use Karen Overall's deference protocol, her relaxation protocol, and look at her stuff on biofeedback. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do, like, I'm not a veterinary behaviourist. Um, I'd love to do um, further study in it. <laughs> I just don't have time. No. Um, but I, I don't think, and I want to be a generalist, like I want to be an integrative GP um, and try to be on top of everything as much as possible yeah. and and work within a framework of saying, yeah, I'm not an expert in this, um, but I certainly know some great protocols. Uh, yeah. I know the experts and, and try to define when it's appropriate to get them in yeah. um, and very much look at a teams-based approach to medicine. Um, yeah. it, just, it just, that's what I've observed being an integrative clinic. Um, we see a lot of referrals from um, primary accession vets, from specialists, or people that are just looking for something else. And often my families that I work, like the families that we work with have three vets. Yeah. Um, and then maybe some allied health professionals. Well, it's similar to us really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's more about um, saying, well, you know, I've done a vet degree, um, done extra studying um I would love to, I'd love to do um, a specialty in, like the main one that I would like to do is uh, uh, my diplomat status in um, botanical medicine from the States, um, mm-hmm. which is emerging board certification. Mm. Um, but then, yeah, I'd love to do more in behavioral gastroenterology, uh, internal medicine, but it's important to just like say, <laughs> actually, um, if I'm just uh, doing my job with passion and um, and uh, just staying at breadth with as much literature as you can because there's just too much for us all to to learn um, yeah, and I'm a huge fan of podcasts I listen yeah. to them very regularly um, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> there's so much information that we can share and and um, exchange it's it's awesome yeah you always make me feel so excited about everything you talk <laughs> about <laughs> um so I know that we're going to be touching in the next part of this topic that we're talking about, about how we can apply all of these different things in certain cases and, and have some more practical tips for for listeners to go along with. Um, but going back a little bit to talking about the gut-brain axis, so not specifically the gut-brain skin or the gut-brain immune system axis, but just the gut-brain axis. Mm-hmm. So you have talked about the impact of dysbiosis and refractory disease, um, but can we talk a little bit and sort of just, I guess, uh, dangle a carrot for <laughs> the listeners to go on to part B about how herbal medicine, nutraceuticals and uh, nutrition can start to impact the gut-brain axis and then we can touch touch base on the specifics of that next time. Sure. Yeah, so this is... Um this is fascinating stuff in, in my opinion. Um, I hope other people find it fascinating. I'm sure some will. Um, we now know um, that uh, there's certain uh, dysbioses um, that we see, certain patterns of the the makeup in, in the diversity and the abundance or lack of certain um, bacteria strains um, within the microbiome that make dogs more likely to be anxious, more likely to be aggressive. Um, and uh, so, so when we're thinking about how can um, uh, the microbiome manipulation play a role in 
gut brain medicine, um, we can say, well, uh, we now know that a lot of behavioral tendencies um, which uh, which result in um, phobia or aggression, um, with, which are mostly underpinned by anxiety, if we know that um, that that can be um, assessed, um, a biomarker assessed uh, to sort of diagnose whether like whether or not the, there's a dysbiosis involved um, or how involved it is, um, and we're looking at okay, how can we modify? Um, the microbiome through use of polyphenolic compounds, which is where herbal medicine comes mm-hmm. in, nutraceuticals, um, herbal medicine and nutritional strategies. Um, and certainly under n- nutritional strategies, strategies, I'd be talking about um, uh, prebiotics and probiotics, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and sometimes antibiotics mm-hmm. as well. Um, I think that in the future, we'll see that we might be uh, and certainly fecal microbiome transplantation would go into there, um, looking at how we can use individualised data um, from a specific patient that's in front of us. How can we put this together and come up with strategies that tick the boxes for what they need? Um, how can we manipulate their microbiome to better suit what they, how they need to be to be a healthy, functional member of society? Um, so, so looking at um, the herbal medicine, it's quite cool that it's come out now that a lot of the mechanisms for, for herbal medicine are resultant on the metabolites created by uh, the microbiome um, uh, from these herbs and how they're absorbed into the body. And this whole world of what's now known as postbiotics, so looking yes. at all of the metabolites and gases and things that are manufactured um, by the gut. Um, so that's sort of the area where I'd most say if we're looking at what's exciting on the horizon would be nutrient-based psychiatry for pets, mm-hmm. nutrigenomics um, as well, like how can we get um, food to talk to um, the microbiome and our genetic expression and what implications that has for um, improving behavioural conditions. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, okay, well, I'd love to get into that in the next episode that Good. we record together. But I think we're nearly out of time for today. So is there anything else that you wanted to mention about about part one of the PNI story? Um, I think that both practitioners um, and uh, pet guardians alike need to, in my opinion, uh, not to minimise the role of stress um, mm-hmm. on what might be seen as a physical issue for their pet, um, right through to even something like arthritis um, because we know that uh, inflammatory signals in the body that we now know uh, related to stress can manifest as like rheumatoid arthritis in humans. A vagal nerve stimulation is a is a way to treat rheumatoid arthritis. It seems that that's emerging. Wow. So we need to be thinking that we can't look at a dog and say that dog's got IBD or that dog's got this physical yeah, condition. It's bigger than that. And and maybe ignore without over-medicalizing behavior, but actually um, sort of asking your vet, is my dog is my dog's behavior grounded and normal? Um, should we do some work there? Or mm. as a vet say, okay, I, I feel like we're we're not getting the responses that we want. What might be missing here? What what can I include from my existing toolkit? I don't know acupuncture. I don't need Chinese herbal medicine. Um, I don't have time to do a home prepared diet today, but I can. Um, send this person home with some training um, yeah. or biofeedback or yeah. a pheromone therapy or something um, yeah. over the counter um, that could be beneficial today. 
Mm. It's yeah. really the, I mean, what you've just described is really the essence of what holistic medicine is. Sure, yeah. yeah. So it's just this full circle of being like yeah. holistic medicine. I mean, holistic as a word is coming up all through um, modern language, like a holistic approach to a human resources strategy in a business yeah. or a holistic approach to X or Y. Yeah. Um, so it's important to just say, actually, uh, the internet of things, uh, you know, the internet and the internet of things and machine learning just means that we are going to be more comfortable with complexity. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think that should be the quote of this episode. <laughs> be comfortable with complexity. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll have to uh, trademark that for you. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. That'd be great. Oh, thank you so much for joining us again, Matt. It's always just such a pleasure and such a privilege for me to be able to tap into your amazing brain. Are you able to just tell us again where we can find you and All Natural Vet Care? Sure. Yeah. So um, we're on 02971258844 if you'd like to call or via www.naturalvet.com.au. We've got a brand new website, uh, lots of links, um, lots of information, uh, and that's that's the best place to reach out to me. Excellent. That would be so helpful yeah. for everyone, I bet. Thanks so much for having me. It's oh, it's awesome always a pleasure. We'll talk to you again soon. Great. This was the Pure Animal Podcast, and I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. If you enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to jump onto iTunes and give us a rating and review.